everyone. I'm Roger. And I'm Andrea, and this is Two Vets Upstate. Happy August, everybody. Summer is almost over. Don't tell me that. But there's always time to leave us a review and rating on your favorite podcasting app. It helps us reach more veterans and connect them to more resources. Yeah, and we've got a great show for you today. Uh, We're recording this Monday night, so for us, it's tonight. Uh, Our guest is journalist and uh, sort of native upstate New Yorker, Adam Weinstein. Uh, We can't wait to get into it with him. But first, Andrea, what are you eating or drinking? I am drinking a nine pin. Mm, Shocker. Shocker. I know. So I'm not only drinking it, but I am in upstate New York, in Kinderhook, across the street from some mascot <laughs> orchards where the apples that go into this cider are picked. So it's very, a very, very special nine-pin cider. Don't at me. We're going to have to pipe some Wi-Fi to that orchard that you keep talking about and just do a show from there, I feel like. It's, a, it's time. I am not eating or drinking anything from upstate New York. Uh, currently because I am saving myself for when I return to upstate New York next week. Um, I'm taking the family up and we're going to the great New York state fair. So, uh, man, I haven't been since I was like 10 years old. So Andrea, what else is uh, new with you since our last, uh, our last podcast, which feels like forever ago, but it's not forever ago. (laughs) I know. Um, So I recently had an op-ed in the Navy Times about um, how the Navy can better support sailors in pursuing college, in in their pursuit of college. Um, So if you're interested in veterans and education, check it out. Um, I am in upstate. Um, This is actually, I think, the first podcast that we're recording where one of us is upstate. That's Um, true. I know. Um, now an official member of American Legion, post 184 in Oxford, Yeah, um, really excited about that. Uh, definitely the youngest member was the only woman who showed up tonight. Um, a lot of that is actually not because the membership is primarily older, but there are a lot of members who are our age, who are in our 30s, who are just busy raising their families and um, can't make it. So one of the objectives for this particular post is trying to find a way to be more family friendly. Um, I was really, I was welcomed from the second I walked through the door. Everyone was very um, welcoming and friendly and I'm really glad to be part of that post. Um, And then also have been connecting with some Truman New Yorkers who, as it turns out, are upstaters. So, um, yeah, and also happy 100 years of women in the Marine Corps. May we uh, have 100 more years of even better inclusion of women in the Marine Corps, I think. So, Roger, what's new with you? Um, well, I'm looking forward to coming home uh, next week. We're going to spend about three or four days, take a little bit of time off work, um, go up to the fair, um, meet with some folks, hang out with my folks, um, so they can see their granddaughter who's running all around the house now, uh, which is great. Uh, 13 months old. Uh, she is, uh, really entertaining. Uh, they really don't pitch the entertainment value of children 
enough uh, for prospective parents, but it's a lot of fun right now. Um, I also was recently uh, had an op-ed uh, in, I guess, what was the post standard at Syracuse.com now um, on the anniversary of what was actually the first flag to ever fly in uh, battle, or I should say the first American flag um, flew over Fort Stanwix, which is in present day Rome, New York. I had some fun with it. Uh, a lot of our sports fan listeners know that uh, it's NFL season. And of course, with NFL season comes a bunch of very opinionated people who believe they know what athletes should and shouldn't do with their time uh, and their influence. Uh, so we talked a lot about uh, in that op-ed uh, what it means to actually be an American and the sort of spirit of defiance that went into creating that first flag and how that is still alive and well today uh, for those who protest police violence, violence against black Americans, um, and who won't be silenced today uh, at the hands of a, what is a strong central government, not too much unlike uh, King George's way back in the day. So that was my moment of uh, feisty writing, and I had a lot of fun. Well, what, what's next, Andrea? I think we have a very important topic that we would like to discuss. Yes. Um, so we've been at this podcast for a couple of months, and if you haven't noticed, we really like to stand for what's right. And we can make no exceptions when it comes to finally deciding an incredibly important issue once and for all. We're leaving no stone unturned in this discussion. We are finally going to answer the question, where does upstate New York start? Dun, dun, dun. Okay, so we have three possibilities. Roger, do you want to take us through possibility number one? Yes, possibility number one, and potentially we'll have a vote on this. It will be the best vote. Uh, possibility number one is something that I like to call uh, the Cookie Monster map. And it is essentially what Cookie Monster per would perceive as upstate New York. This will be in the show notes, but if you take a look at the state of New York, you sort of have upstate, and then you have a small cookie that's the southern tier. And Cookie Monster couldn't eat the upstate New York cookie because it's just too damn big, okay? And we don't want Cookie Monster to die. So Cookie Monster is a sensible cookie eater. He's going to eat the smaller downstate cookie tier, which essentially means that, according to Cookie Monster, upstate New York starts uh, in Delaware, Green, and Columbia counties, which may or may not be right. Columbia County is definitely upstate New York. <laughs> so there's also the um the coffee bathroom thriving yes um so if you go to 9th street espresso on east 56th street drink a large americano get in a car and drive until you have to pee yes and so approximately one hour and 10 minutes in an arc north northeast intersection highland falls yes or on the other side of harriman and bear mountain state parks now, this, of course, assumes you don't get in stuck in traffic leaving the state, um, in, which you'll probably, in which case you'll probably only be in Putnam County, and that's not actually upstate. Yeah, no, I, I think that's right. I think this is our most mathematical. This has to do a lot with fluid leaving a system and time and space and distance, um, which leads us into the third option for the what 
Yes. For what is, what is upstate New York? Where does it start? It's the fall foliage map. So we know it. Andrea, you probably, um, having grown up far, a little further downstate than I have, know that on October 1st, the bros in New York City, when they look around at each other as bros are often want to do, and they say, bros, fellow bros, as they would, you know, address one another. Uh, let's take a trip upstate to see the leaves, bros. And the other bros look around and they agree and they say, yes, let's go upstate to see the leaves. Um, for those bros, the peak foliage actually begins, the closest peak foliage for those bros who want to take a trip and don't want to go any farther than they have to, to reach upstate New York, actually starts, and this is the U.S. Uh, Forestry Service, says that on October 1st, peak foliage in New York State starts uh, in Delaware, Green, and Columbia counties as you head north from the borough pad in New York City. Andrea, what do you think? You know, that, uh, that puts Columbia County as being in upstate New York, so I am okay with this. So of the three, Andrea, what do you, what do you think? Do you go with Cookie Monster? Do you go with driving as far as you can from 9th Street Espresso after having a large Americano, or are you a fall foliage believer? I am going to go with eating a cookie in the car driving the fall foliage. Man, I see what you did there. Oh my, I think we have a winner. I think it's a little bit of all of them. And I hope that now this puts to rest, finally, uh, Cynthia Nixon, Andrew Cuomo, you know, Cher, you can finally stop talking about where upstate New York starts. We, we have determined it for you. So uh, Andrea, speaking of upstate New York, it's Monday night. August 13th, which can only mean uh, that the President of the United States is currently in upstate New York. What's he doing up there? He is signing the NDAA at Fort What? What? And also having a very expensive fundraiser for Claudia Tenney, the co current Congresswoman from New York's 22nd Congressional District, and also in New York State Congressional Fund. Uh, Chris Collins, the congressman from New York's 27th, which uh -huh. is counties near Buffalo, yes, uh, has been charged with insider trading. So lots of lots of upstate New York congressional fun. Yeah, shout out to my grandparents for whom uh, he is their congressman, and I, I guess I haven't kept up. Is he? I heard that he had suspended his campaign. As he has he also stepped down from being a dead? I mean, a uh, congressman. The latest, the latest is that he suspended his campaign. Oh, okay. So he's still proudly representing my grandparents. That's just great. <laughs> um, so the New York State Fair is also on. Yes. What are the things that veterans can look for at the fair? Well, there is a day for veterans, a whole day. I'm pretty sure there's a military discount to get in the rest of the days, but you can get in for free to the great New York State Fair in Syracuse, New York on Thursday, August 30th. Oh, my goodness, I can't even speak. August 30th, it's a Thursday. It's Armed Forces Day. It's free admission to any active duty uh, service member or veteran with military ID. Um, that could be a military ID card, a DD-214, if you just happen to be hanging around with that in your back pocket, or uh, if you have a driver's license, a learner's permit, or a non-driver ID card that has a veteran designation on it. 
um, which is also probably a good plug at this point to hit up the DMV and get a veteran designation on your uh, state-issued ID cards. Um, I know that, and I also just got my veteran plates for my car, and they are very American. Yes, you will know that it's Andrea. I'm not going to give anything away, but I want you just to drive around Columbia County until you uh, until you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, you'll know. You'll know my car. <laughs> <laughs> I have a plug. I guess uh, we're getting close to shout-outs here for the Small Business Fund for the New York State Bar Association. Uh, the 2019 grant cycle is now open for applications. Essentially what it is, is the business law section of the New York State Bar offers veteran-owned nonprofits and businesses free legal support uh, for their endeavors. Um, The fund is established through a gift from the business law section, uh, and it provides that support, which if you're a small business owner, you know is crucial. And if you're thinking about small business uh, creation or entrepreneurship, you might have some questions about where can I get legal help that's not going to, you know, make this not be a profitable endeavor. So we'll have a link in the show notes for that. But the Small Business Fund of the New York State Bar is the way to go. What else, Andrea? So there's a lot going around. So this is a point where we talk about, you know, what's going on around the nation that impacts veterans. So there's been a lot of talk and pretty well known at this point that there has been quite a bit of influence from the private sector in not the greatest way in the VA, but this week ProPublica um, released a story that, that made it very clear that there's really basically an oligarchy of three, um, three men that uh, have never served in the United States military, who are basically like the shadow government of the VA. Um, and Marvel will never be the same. Spider-Man will just never be the same. So for our shout outs, um, thank you, Derek Coy from the New York State Health Foundation for reaching out to us. He is holding an event on Tuesday, August 28th with one of our favorite veterans, Kate Germano on gender disparities in the military and the impact on veterans' health. It is in New York City, but if you're in the area, we hope you'll check it out. And word is that the event is going to be live streamed as well. Awesome. And speaking of Kate Germano, uh, her husband, Joe Plensler, also a Marine vet, uh, has a great piece out in the Daily Beast titled, How Protesting the KKK Led Me to Join the Military. Uh, that'll be in our show notes as well. Read it. It's an excellent read. Uh, well done to that power couple for all their badassery that they uh, do on a daily basis. And now it's time to introduce our guest. I'm proud to introduce Adam Weinstein, um, a journalist originally from upstate New York, the hometown of Socrates. Adam, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. So you're from upstate New York. Tell us about your town and how you grew up. Yeah. Um, so at some point in the 1950s, uh, Kenneth Weinstein, my grandfather, an Army vet, um, decided that Brooklyn just wasn't cutting it anymore and uh, moved his new bride up uh, route off of uh, Route 28A to West Hurley, uh, right by the Ashokan Reservoir. 
and uh, apprenticed to the uh, gentlemen who were producing Tommy guns up the street. Uh, and so, sorry, I've, I've got my uh, I got my my son in the background too. Um, and so, uh, the uh, family basically ended up growing up in upstate New York uh, because my grandfather decided to be a gunsmith. And so, I was born in Kingston, uh, grew up in. Saugerties for a couple of years, and my father, who was a grease monkey at the Albany Avenue Garage in Kingston, decided to be a grease monkey on boats instead because that's where the money was in the in the eighties, and uh, moved the family down to Fort Lauderdale. And uh, I fell in with a bad group and ended up falling in love with uh, boats, and things went quickly downhill after that. But um, the Catskill Mountains and uh, Ulster County, in particular, are really like the homeland for my family and we have a very strong kind of pull back in that direction. I just want to take a moment to recognize that we have uh, three squids on the pod today. Um, nobody's going to be swabbing the poop deck, but can you tell us, uh, Adam, I guess you sort of alluded to it, but uh, why did you join the Navy and what did you do when you were in the Navy? Yeah, I was pretty spoiled because I'd already done like six years in the Sea Cadets down here um, working on uh, Coast Guard cutters on my weekends and on the summers. I think I actually probably got more sea time in high school than I did in the Navy. But um, <laughs> I, uh, I uh, was given an appointment to uh, the U.S. Naval Academy class in 2000. Um, I ended up leaving and transferring into Columbia after the uh, uh, first two years, which were free of obligation. Long story there, but... Um, we had a particularly bad summer cruise on a, a, a boomer sub on a nuclear ballistic missile submarine. And six, we had six midshipmen that summer. And of the six, three of us ended up leaving our commissioning program because oh, we, we had a rough time in the, in the uh, sub training. But um, uh, after that, I ended up finishing up my undergrad degree at, at Columbia. And then um, 9-11 was the second week of my senior year. So I ended up re-enlisting in the Naval Reserve down in South Florida and was an enlisted operations specialist for a couple of years. Uh, not much exciting happened out of that, except it gave me a secret clearance, which was great when I was out of work and needed to be a contractor in Roth for a year, which was a growth industry. Um, and so I've, I've probably spent more time, uh, you know, well, considerably more time at this point, covering the military uh, as part of my second profession as a journalist than I ever spent uh, in uniform. But it gave me the ability to kind of speak that language, understand what service members are all about, and really listen to their concerns. So speaking of journalism, earlier on we talked about <coughs> news that um, you helped break through task and purpose. Um, that the VA, VA was essentially being run by a group of wealthy shadow advisors whose only credentials are being rich enough to purchase membership at Mar-a-Lago. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that story and um, your thoughts about it? Yeah, uh, you know, so it would have been last Tuesday night, I guess, that story dropped. And uh, it was a big splash in, in military journalist circles almost immediately. Um, you know, at Task and Purpose, we had been, myself and, and James Clark, one of the writers, we had been covering uh, VA pretty heavily uh, since uh, President Trump's uh, inauguration. Right. And there's been a lot of there's been a lot of controversy going back and forth about the, uh, the extent to which uh, certain forces uh, on a conservative side uh, provided by the 
of what VA does for them. And so we have been really looking for those kinds of inside stories. So who are the people that are really attending the gravity of, of these fights? And, uh, you know, in the Shelby administration, they've heard about several people who are political fights. And everybody's talking about this stuff. And here's this story about these three Mar-a-Lagos and it was like a puzzle piece that everybody had been searching for. And I can't speak to other journalists, but my own uh, phone started lighting up with messages from our sources, from people in the Veterans Service Organization, uh, in the VA itself. Uh, you know, people who were really popular over the last year, they were saying, this is what we were talking about. Mm-hmm. And it really made us stand, you know, sit back and get pause and say, wow, this is crazy. And this is quite the story. Um, so without, out of the question, there was no doubt on Wednesday morning that we knew that Captain Purpose was going to syndicate this program of this story because it was just so significant to the community. I think uh, what what strikes me the most about that is, especially recording tonight with the with the president in upstate New York, where Andrea, you and I have talked about the Rand Corporation study that uh, basically found less than two percent of doctors in upstate uh, in New York at large are really capable of giving veterans in New York the kind of care that they have earned. Uh, so for New Yorkers. Um, without really a whole lot of answer for that, especially as we start pushing the VA choice, this couldn't have come really at a worse time. Uh, when you think about all of the things that have been going on in the VA over the last you know, several years, and it spans Republican and Democratic administrations, but uh, is there, Adam, is there any sense of you know, where, where do we go from here? How does this, how does the VA dig itself out of out of this? Um, it, it's a really good question. The one advantage that the VA has right now is Robert Wilkie. Um, they have uh, a VA secretary who comes from, uh, uh, comes from the DOD bureaucracy, particularly the HR side of that bureaucracy, and kind of understands what some of the challenges are that are facing VA, especially in the post-9-11 era, like some of the new things. Uh, so that's good. And because of this story, the way that it's come out, it seems like he's going to also have some independence that maybe previous secretaries didn't have. That's also good. Anybody who says that there's a simple problem at VA or a simple answer to that problem is a liar, regardless of like, which side they're on. Um, and it's a whole host of, of issues. So, you know, nothing is going to be solved easily or quickly. But this story in particular is something that really needs to give us pause, particularly if, if you're a vet, like you should pay attention to this story because I've, I've heard from people, um, you know, my former employer included, who say, well, there's nothing wrong with, uh, you know, getting the advice of, you know, best business practices uh, people to run this massive bureaucracy. Okay, fair enough. That's the truth. And that's, there are processes for that to happen. You know, yeah. DOD has a defense business board. There are all kinds of ways for you to log in, speak to somebody at the White House, somebody at the EOB, or someone at, at VA, and make, make those, uh, you know, make that voice heard. But those uh, processes also require vetting and recording of who's saying what when. And there's none of those accountabilities involved here. 
Uh, the other thing is, these were not experts. These were guys who had no freaking clue. They all ranged in age from 70 to 80. They all had businesses that either weren't related or they were a little too related in the case of one uh, physician. And these three Mar-a-Lago members who were advising uh, clearly didn't understand VA or how or how the bureaucracy works or the hierarchy fits. So just to give you one quick example, one of those three guys was telling Shulkin and other people in the VA who have to make high-level decisions every day to deal with this problem of the child of a friend who was in the Marine Corps and was having the electronic health, health records issues. And it was down to the leadership of the Department of Veterans Affairs to respond to this Trump friend and say, that's, he's not a veteran, he's active duty, so that's DOD, not Veterans Affairs. So it's not like we were getting strong counsel from these people. This was a terrible idea from the outset, and it needs to be said, and veterans should be aware. Hey, uh, Adam, do you think if uh, the three of us pool our money together, we could also advise the Department of VA? Ooh, uh, well, you know, if there's, uh, if there's offshore funding involved that we could access, probably. Um, ah, yeah, but, probably. Uh, I, I mean, I could write a check. Yeah, really. What is Mar-a-Lago uh, membership going for these days? I mean, if it's that easy, right? I mean, screw security clearances and, you know, best and most fully qualified. Anyway. Yeah. I honestly don't know, but it is kind of, it's kind of amazing. Like one of those tangential questions that seems not that important from the, from the outside. I was wondering, like, how much was the VA spending to fly a secretary to down to Mar-a-Lago to have these audiences in order to, you know, get important deals closed? Um, and kiss the brick. It's just such a bizarre situation. And the idea that anybody who stands up for the accountable government, left or right, would have an issue with, or would not have an issue with this, is my point. So one of the things that I've been thinking about is how it seems like a lot of what is happening with the VA is almost as if it's, it's testing what could happen elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Because if you can get away with something with the VA, it's almost as if like you could get away with it anywhere. And my question is, how do we get more people who have no connections to the military community whatsoever to really, really care about the fate of the Department of Veterans Affairs? That's, that's really tough. Because, I mean, one thing that I think that multiple administrations, multiple civil servants in the VA across, uh, you know, partisan lines will tell you is that the brand stinks and nobody really likes the brand. Now, when you ask people individually how they feel about their uh, care, um, everybody's got lots to complain about. And there's nothing about VA that exactly makes sense on first glance. But... Um, people are generally really happy that they have it. And it is one of those original accountabilities that's kind of baked into our government. This is a promise that, that President Lincoln made to veterans in the Civil War, and we continue to keep that promise. So it's a tough question because I think, I think the inclination of most people to look at this from the outside and say, oh, God, it's such a mess. Everybody agrees it's such a mess. Maybe you start over. And that's when really bad ideas start to, I think, get a little bit more currency. That said, you know, I don't have a problem with VA choice in principle. I don't have a problem with the idea of there being uh, open alternatives for veterans so that they can get the care they need in a, in a timely fashion. 
But um, as we've seen with all the funding problems that, and the accountability problems, you know, there's still no grown-ups at the wheel who are saying, you know, this needs to happen a certain way. And a large part of that is because of the influence of political money and political forces on both sides. So short answer, I, I don't know. I don't know how you fix this. I really don't. But there's a lot of things in America that I'm not sure how you fix right now. <laughs> Uh, good, good transition to, to my next question, I guess, which is, uh, uh, last week on the podcast, we talked about, uh, the VFW national convention and the veterans who booed reporters at the behest of the president of the United States as someone who has been very involved as a member of the press of the media. What's your take on this? And should veterans groups like the VFW and so many others uh, hold their members to a higher standard. Well, yes. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, 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 you know, uh, I was a sea cadet and a naval reservist, which means I've done a lot of color guards. Uh, and <laughs> true. I, it, which means I got to know a lot of people, for example, in the Navy League, Marine Corps League, and yacht clubs down here. And these are people who, you know, vote conservatively. And these are people who are also deeply supportive of the military. Right. These are people to whom it would never have occurred to be so uncivil five, 10, 15 years ago. Now, they might have spoken that way on the back of their boats or in the company. But I've never seen that, that level of instability from the very people who kind of, uh, you know, understand what it means to be an officer, a gentleman, to comport yourself responsibly. I, I don't know what to say. Anytime that uh, you have a president of the United States goading any crowd, much less veterans, to boo the press, um, well, we've got bigger problems in this country. And I, I want to be able to, to point that out and, and call spade a spade and say, that, that's not right. That's not the way things should be. And you have a vested interest, uh, a freedom-loving American veteran, you have a vested interest in a, uh, an adversarial and robust press that mm-hmm. asks hard questions on your behalf. And it, if people feel like the media is not working on their behalf, I get that. I get that 150%. But there are forces that are absolutely trying to cloud your uh, people's faith in these institutions because it's in their financial and political interest and for no real greater reason, not because of ideology. Um, and, and that's, I don't know what to do with that information. I really don't know. I, I'd have trouble surveying right now, to be perfectly honest. So let, let's talk a little bit more about, about journalism and, and how you got there. And so tell us a little bit about your journey to journalism and, and how do veterans continue to serve by getting involved in journalism or careers in the press after service? Um, I was pursuing a master's degree in international affairs at Florida State and uh, working to pay the bills at the local newspaper as a, as a copy editor and uh, news assistant. And I fell in love with it. And I had written for community, for local newspapers before, and uh, I had always enjoyed writing. But being able to tell other people's stories and to also be 
um, part of a touchstone in a community, whether that was a newspaper or, you know, a blog for uh, erudite New Yorkers or a blog for veterans, it, it was just really cool. And so I applied to uh, Columbia Journalism School. I knew what I was getting into because I'd done undergrad there. And I was pleasantly surprised to see uh, post 9 11 a really big presence of veterans in academic life there. There were three or four, um, you know, uh, transition military officers in my class, including uh, a 2002 West player who had already gone to Iraq two or three times and was concerned about being stopped while we were students. Um, and then we found out that there was a real generous network of former military service members who were already in the business. Uh, I don't think anybody goes very far at the vet in journalism without coming across uh, C.J. Shivers, Chris Shivers, New York Times. He was very gracious with his time and with advice to all of us in my class uh, who were vets. And, um, you know, I didn't set out to be in lefty media, uh, but I ended up working in a series of places like Mother Jones in part because those were audiences that really didn't know their way around the military, around the bureaucracy, or even around guns. And I found being able to articulate a little bit about that world to new audiences, they were really grateful. And vets were pretty grateful too, because, hey, there's people that actually understand us that didn't before. Um, I can't believe how many vets are in journalism now. And I'm so stoked that it's happening. Uh, I guess it's a GI Bill success story. But uh, it really is one of the big stories, I think, post 9 11 is how many people are, are working in media now. And um, it's a really good thing. And it's a really supportive community across all kinds of publications and a ideological spectrum. So what should veterans who are considering getting involved in journalism do before, during, and after they leave the military if it's something they are considering pursuing? So before you leave the military, just be sure of what your transition benefits really are and really cover. Um, you probably, especially if you're taking like, like a internal leave, you have the opportunity to talk to people before you really need to hit the ground funding. Um, the J school question is a weird one. Generally speaking in our business, now we tell people don't bother with journal school. Um, however, if you have GI Bill, strongly consider it because it's a really great education that's worth your time. I went to graduate journalism school after doing something completely different than undergrad. That's the only way that I justify it. You can get a perfectly good journalism undergrad degree, but it's probably more important at this point to study the things that you're interested in covering, whether that's pop culture, movies and cinema, um, literature, politics, like there's a monster out there that's probably a lot more interesting than, than journalism. Those are skills that you can learn on, on the job. And then the most important thing, I think, where regardless of where you are professionally, is don't be afraid to ask for help. Um, the veterans community in journalism is even, in my experience, more supportive than readers and fellow journalists and colleagues who are already pretty dang supportive and tight. So, you know, there are a lot of people out there who are willing to help you show the ropes, figure out where you need internships, what kind of experience you can get, whether you're going to freelance, whether you're going to go full time. Um, there's a lot of resources out there. Uh, and to the extent that I can be one of them, please send people to my Twitter or my website. I, I love trying to help out. 
I see you've got a new newsletter uh, called National Insecurity, uh, Angry White Guys, My Guns, Critical Theory, and Recipes Probably. So I'm just wondering, as you turn another page sort of in your career here, what's on your radar going forward? Uh, What and maybe who uh, should we be following or looking out for? I've gotten some very, uh, you know, generous offers of, of assistance and work from some really cool circles. Uh, a, a lot of them are not going to pan out overnight. And uh, I am privileged, in addition to being, you know, a, a white dude of a certain age, um, I, I have enough savings that I can afford to figure it out uh, for a month or two before I have to jump into something full time. So I really want to pick and choose projects. I really want to work with people who are building things and I really want to write a book and I'm working on it and it's got nice. an absolute New York peg. Nice. So, awesome. <laughs> so um, Adam, any parting words of advice for our listeners? Listen, life is too short to get hung up on ideology. If you are on the left and you're sniping people on the left and the right, for various reasons, you're doing it wrong. This is a time in our lives and in our country's life where solidarity is needed across the board. Um, And I don't mean for any particular political aim. I mean just for us to hang together and remind each other what are the things that we, you know, once sworn oath to defend? What are the things that we care about and get up every morning to actually safeguard and steward? Um, What are the things that we're building? And uh, frankly, to have that conversation, you probably got to get off Twitter and you got to get off most of the blogs you're reading today (laughs) and just, you know, see people IRL. Uh, That's one thing that I I feel is just really missing since 2016. People got to get off of the virtual daily crisis nightmare machine and talk to each other again. And I'm hoping in my profession that I can help facilitate that. Well, those are great parting words. Adam, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks a lot, Adam. Uh, Of course, thank you for having me. And uh, this is Two Vets Upstate. Until next time. Until next time, we'll see you, everybody. Have a good night or 